right? At this time, we have a, a class for the kids that are too old to be in nursery but are not yet able to sit in here. So if you have kids that are potty trained and in preschool or kindergarten, they are welcome to head downstairs for their class this morning, or you're welcome to keep them in here with you. I know some of the parents like to uh, sit all together as a family, and we welcome that as well. But we'll go ahead and dismiss the kids who do go down at this point. Thank you guys for serving the parents and serving our kids. It's a huge ministry each week, um, and they're not just playing duck, duck, goose, and eating animal crackers. They're teaching them about Jesus, which is a good thing. So thank you guys for that ministry. Um, for those of you who are visiting this morning, I got a chance to meet some of you, not all of you, but I want to welcome you to Redemption Hill Church. My name is J.D. Summers. I serve as pastor here, um, and I want to uh, say thank you to our church body. Um, this past week, I was in California and got a chance to attend the Shepherds Conference, which every year this church um, has sent me out there, which is very refreshing and encouraging. Uh, heard good preaching. Have some very good fellowship with uh, the pastors and elders from our sending church, and even got to meet up with some old friends I hadn't seen in probably 15 years. And I came back refreshed, a little bit jet jet lagged, so I lost two hours coming from California, and then an hour with daylight savings. But I'm excited to be here with you guys and to open the word. So please turn to James, James chapter one. Before we continue our series preaching through the book of James, I think it's good for us to remind ourselves what exactly it is that we're doing here this morning so that we can take the appropriate care as we approach the scriptures, which is the word of God. In James chapter 1, at the very beginning of the book, in verse 1, James introduces himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many things we can draw from that kind of a statement. But one of the most important, important things we can draw from it is this. That James, the author of this letter, saw himself as a man who was under authority. He answers to Christ as a servant of Christ. He is to do the will of Christ. He is here to advance the purposes of Christ. And he writes to proclaim the truth of Christ. Christ. Jesus is the risen Messiah. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. And according to Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, all power and authority on earth and in heaven has been given to me. Jesus created all things, upholds and sustains all things, and therefore he owns all things. As Abraham Kuyper put it, there's not a square inch in this whole universe over which Jesus does not declare mine. James recognizes the incomparable and uncontested authority of Jesus Christ. And this is why, as a man who is under authority, James can write with such authority. As we've mentioned before, this book of James contains more commands relative to its length than any other book in the New Testament. James tells us what we must do. He tells us how we ought to act. But remember, James is simply the messenger. And what comes to us in this book is nothing less than the authority of Jesus Christ. So as we jump into this text today, please remember that these are not simply suggestions on how to live a better life. What will follow is not simply the perspective of a biblical author, 
And it's definitely not just the thoughts of this pastor. Christ speaks with divine authority in and through his word. So in light of that, let's pray and submit ourselves to Christ and ask for him to speak to us. Lord Jesus, you are truly Lord, ruler over all. You are our master. For those of us in here today who know you, who have trusted in your gospel, we have bowed our knee to your kingship over us. And we recognize that you, as the living word, are revealed to us in this, the written word. So Lord, speak to us today through your spirit and bring stubborn hearts and wills under the authority of your word. We're thankful, as we've sung already, of your faithfulness, of your greatness. We've sung of your glory. Lord, far be it from us to sing of your supremacy with our lips and fail to bring our lives and our hearts in conformity to your will. Give us soft hearts now, hearts that are eager to believe and obey all that you show us in your word. Amen. So I know we've looked at James 1.1, but our text is James 1, 19 through 21. I want to read it for you. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. The theme of this letter, the book of James, is that genuine faith affects all of life. There's no compartmentalizing our faith. If you trust in Christ and you believe his gospel and you're relying on him for salvation, that should literally touch every area of life. And we've seen already in chapter 1 that faith shapes our response to trials. We rejoice when we face trials. We ask for wisdom when we face trials, and we seek to endure in trials and resist the temptations that come along the way as we trust in the goodness of God. That's a summary of the first 18 verses of James. But now James moves on from trials to show us that faith should also control our response to the word of God. As we will see, this word is essential to our very salvation, and it must be not only received, but also practiced. In verses 22 through 27, James will show us that we must be doers of the word and not just hearers of it. Genuine faith will control how we respond to the word of God. It will cause us to receive it and to obey it. We'll focus on the receiving this morning. The obeying will be next week. But it all starts, doesn't it, with hearing. It starts with receiving. So James first takes aim at our hearts. Before he urges us to do what the word says, he takes aim at our hearts. Without spiritual humility, which James calls meekness here in this text, we will not be able to rightly respond to the word of God. In our text this morning, verses 19 through 21, James contrasts two kinds of responses. The response of a hard heart that won't listen and is hasty to speak and quickly angered. And the response of a heart that is meek, that is soft, that is humble, and that is receptive to the word of God. His point this morning is that genuine faith should produce a spirit of meekness in our hearts. 
That's the big idea. If you have real faith, living faith, saving faith, it ought to be producing a spirit of meekness in your heart. So the question is, what is this meekness that you speak of? It's not a word we use often. I don't know if you've ever been described as a meek person. And if you have been, if you took it as a compliment or, or a criticism, what does meekness mean? Meekness, this Greek word, has the idea of gentleness and humility. Gentleness in the way you treat others with word and deed. And the reason you treat others gently is because of a spirit of humility. It has the idea of not being overly impressed by a sense of your own importance. And so responding with care to others. And this concept of meekness is a virtue that biblically we are instructed to cultivate. Colossians 3.12 instructs us. Paul commands us. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is a virtue that if you are a believer, you are commanded to put on, to cultivate, to grow in. It's also a fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5. It is a mark of those who are spiritually mature. Those who are surrendered to Christ. Those who are dependent on and living by the power of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. That's the same Greek word translated meekness in James. And self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. A virtue we are to put on, to grow in, to cultivate Meekness means you are not combative, but you're under control. You are humble and gentle. It doesn't mean you always agree with everyone. It doesn't mean you always give in or comply. It doesn't mean you're a doormat. It simply means that your responses to other people, and especially to the Word of God, are governed by the Spirit rather than by your own passions, your own emotions, and your own pride. We can think of meekness as the application of humility to life's interactions. If you're still not convinced that meekness is good and that you should be meek, consider that Jesus is the example of meekness. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says in chapter 10, verses 1, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Christ displays the perfection of meekness, but he was not weak. That's a different thing. He was definitely not a pushover. And we can read stories of how Jesus uh, condemns the Pharisees, and he doesn't mince words. We can read stories of how Jesus walks into the temple to flip over tables and drive out those who are profaning the holy place of worship and prayer. And I think most profoundly, we can consider the story of Jesus, who sets his face to walk to Jerusalem, knowing that they're going to scourge him and nail him to a cross. And he doesn't say a word in defense of himself. And he picks up his cross and carries it to the foot of Calvary. Jesus was not weak, but he was the epitome of meekness. Paul writes to the Ephesians that meekness is an essential part of walking in a manner that is worthy of our calling. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he defines it. With all humility and gentleness, same word translated meekness here, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This idea of meekness is not a picture of being weak and lacking strength. Rather, displays great strength. It shows self-control. You see, anybody can fly off the handle and lose it. Anybody can do that. It doesn't take any strength. It doesn't take any maturity to be able to lose your temper and to get angry at others and vomit your, your pride all over them. And nobody respects that kind of a person, the kind of person who gets mad and throws a fit, who gets angry and stomps off. It takes discipline and strength and maturity to demonstrate self-control when life gets difficult to handle and when you hear things that you don't want to hear. I think a great illustration of meekness is, I don't know if any of you kids ever like to watch those nature shows. Um, when I was a kid, we had the antenna, and we had Channel 19, KCPT, and, and we'd watch these lions hunting. And you'd see uh, these, this pride of lions. The male was usually lazy, taking a nap, but the female, females would be hunting. And you'd see their shoulder blades moving up and down as they're in the grass. And you'd see every muscle rippling under their skin. And they would jump on this big zebra or wildebeest and crush the vertebrae on the back of the neck because of the strength of their jaws. Massive power in those jaws. And then five minutes later, they'd walk over and pick up one of their cubs by the head with those same jaws. I think that's the picture of meekness. It's power and strength that is gentle and under control and able to show care towards others. James is concerned here with addressing our hearts. And he urges us to maintain and cultivate a spirit of meekness that evidences mature faith. And there's two areas in which this meekness should characterize us. Number one, in our responses to others. And number two, and I think primarily, in our response to the word. Let's look at both of those. Number one, we must respond with gentle humility towards others. This is verses 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We must respond with gentle humility towards others. James is speaking here to brothers, beloved brothers, in fact, to Christians. And he gives us some very simple but very specific instructions. This is a command. And keep in mind, this command comes with the authority of Christ. And he says, know this, know this, my beloved brothers. Basically, pay attention to what I am about to tell you because it's very important And then he proceeds to give three descriptions of the right way to respond to other people. First, he says, be quick to hear. Be quick to hear. Meekness is demonstrated by listening. Meekness is demonstrated by listening. The application here is obvious. It's foolish and wrong to have the kind of heart that refuses to listen to other people. A refusal to hear someone out shows a heart that is hard and stubborn and proud which is the opposite of being meek, being humble. You know, as believers, I mean, think about this. We hold on our laps, we possess in our hands the truth of God's word. And just the very fact that we know this is God's truth, that in and of itself should humble us in this way. It's a constant reminder that truth comes from outside of us. Truth comes to us. It's not found within us. And that in and of itself should humble us to make us listeners 
not only to the words of God on the pages of Scripture, but listeners to others around us as they bring God's word to us. Listening demonstrates meekness. He says, be quick to hear. But secondly, he says, be slow to speak. Meekness is demonstrated not just by listening, but also by not responding hastily. Being slow to speak demonstrates meekness. I am guilty of this, perhaps you are as well, but we often are quick to assume that we know what needs to be said. And we can foolishly pour out words that once spoken can never be taken back. And this quickness to speak not only leads to regret, but it also hinders our ability to listen, doesn't it? It keeps us from hearing what God may want us to hear. But again, keep in mind, James is addressing the heart. So this slowness to speak is more than a matter of simply biting your tongue. It requires a quiet mind. That's a different thing altogether. You know, it's easy to give the appearance of listening, to look at someone with a closed mouth, but to be completely distracted because you're thinking about what you want to say as soon as you get a chance to jump in edgewise. But being slow to speak means we have not just a quiet voice, but a quiet mind to listen. One of my basketball coaches, sometimes we get a little bit frustrated in practice when he was laying out a new play that we were trying to install into our offense or something. And he would say, I know you heard me, but I don't think you were listening to me because somebody had just done the wrong thing like three times in a row after he had explained it. And when he was making a distinction there, he said, I know you heard me. I know you heard the sounds coming out of my mouth, but you weren't listening to me. You didn't receive and internalize and understand what I was saying. And that's very clear because you cut up to the elbow instead of flashing to the corner. It's very simple. You did not understand and listen to me. To be slow to speak means a quiet voice, but also a quiet mind so that we can fully hear and receive what is being said. That demonstrates humility. It demonstrates self-control. It demonstrates meekness. Be quick to hear, be slow to speak. And then thirdly, he says, we must be slow to get angry. Meekness is demonstrated through self-control. You know, it's possible to listen and to be quiet, but also to be quick to anger. And James isn't going to let us get away with that. He's pressing all the way in to the deepest corners of our heart to address our flesh. And so he adds this final comment that deals not just primarily with what you are doing, you know, listening, not speaking, but he addresses what we're even feeling in our hearts. You see, James is a wise pastor, and he's speaking on behalf of a God who sees the heart. And he's not just interested in, in conforming our exterior behavior. He's interested in the transformation of the heart. And this is a heart issue. The heart is the crucial piece of this command. You can't just obey these instructions externally. If you've lived a little bit of life, you know this. Sometimes the quietest people are the angriest people. They may not say much. And they may listen to all you have to say. But inside, there is a volcano of rage. James tells us not to allow our emotions to boil up within us so easily. And this is a battle, a war that has to be waged at the level of the heart. Because you can bite your tongue all you want. 
till it's bleeding and still have sin in your heart. But James says bottling it up won't cut it. Faking it on the outside with a smile while anger seethes on the inside, that won't cut it. It won't please the God who sees to the very depths of your heart. So James isn't saying shut up and hold your tongue. He's saying guard your heart. Don't let yourself be aroused to anger. This instruction would have been familiar to his readers, and I hope it's familiar to you as well, since this is a theme that is common in the Old Testament. Proverbs 10 verse 19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent or wise. Proverbs 17 27 says, Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Proverbs 14.29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 16.32 says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. You know, sometimes anger can, can kind of have the appearance of being a display of strength. Scripture says it's the opposite. It's the one who can control his anger, who truly has strength. We've all heard these familiar statements of wisdom, haven't we? I hope you've read Proverbs and seen these things. But what is sad is that we can easily forget these truths, or at worst, we can ignore them. We can make excuses for our anger, can't we? Feel very justified in being angry. Or we can blame other people for our anger. But we have to recognize here that James states that these instructions apply to who? Verse 19. Let every person, every person. What this means, friend, brother, sister, is that you are not an exception to this command. To be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. It applies to you, even if you're old, and you feel like you have a right to give everyone a piece of your mind, even if you are educated, and you feel like you're smarter than everyone else in the room, even if you're the man of the house, even if you're the employer, even if you are right about something, quote unquote, even if it runs in your family, and you say, that's just the way we communicate, even if you feel like you need to prove a point, even if you've already tried listening, And being patient, and it didn't work. My friend, you don't get a pass. All men and women and children are under the moral obligation of this passage to be quick to hear, to be slow to speak, and to be slow to anger. We need to stop making excuses and submit to God's will in this area. Some of you need to allow the scriptures to reshape your personality to reprogram the way your family communicates, to radically alter the way you treat people. And there's an extremely important reason why we must do this. Look at the reasoning James gives us in verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Your anger does not bear good fruit It does not please God. It does not lead to Christ-likeness. It does not reflect his character. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
Now, this phrase, the righteousness of God, that James speaks of, I want to make clear, this is not the legal status of righteousness that determines our acceptance before God. We know that we are considered righteous before God, not based on our level of self-control. We are counted to be righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. His righteousness is granted to us. That's imputation. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So James isn't talking about justification here, okay? I want to make that clear. This is not about our legal standing before God. When James uses the phrase, the righteousness of God, he's talking about the righteous character, the righteous behavior that God desires to produce in us. So this is not the positional righteousness of justification. This is the practical righteousness of sanctification. Does that make sense? Is that clear? I want to make sure you understand exactly what James is and isn't saying here. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Not our legal standing here, but our character, our maturity, the good fruit that should be born if you have uh, genuine faith. This kind of Christ-like behavior that honors God's word and reflects his character. That's what James is talking about. Psalm 11, verse 7 says that the Lord is righteous and he loves righteous deeds. When you and I obey, when you and I bear good fruit, when you and I as children of God start acting like our heavenly father and showing some family resemblance, that pleases him. The Lord loves righteous deeds. We are often quick to hold up the absolute righteousness of Christ and our own complete sinfulness, and we rightly declare that we can never earn God's approval. But at the same time, do not forget, it is genuinely possible for you and I, if we're believers, to please our Father or to grieve His Spirit. It's it's real. That's there. That does not undercut the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Lord is righteous and he loves righteous deeds, Psalm 11, verse 7. Romans 6, 13, this is why Paul tells us, do not present your members, your your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You see, God loves righteousness. Jesus commands us to seek righteousness. Paul urges us to present our bodies to God as instruments for righteousness. And James warns us that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If you know Christ, and if you desire to be like him and to please him, James tells you that your anger is counterproductive. It will not produce righteousness. But listen to James chapter 3, verse 18. You can flip the page and see this. James chapter 3, verse 18. After talking about genuine wisdom and meekness in verse 13, and he, counter, he, he com- compares these two different kinds of wisdom, one that's meek, one that's not. He says this in verse 18. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. If you desire this righteousness, you desire to please God, you desire to see good fruit in your life and in the lives of others, James says a harvest of righteousness, a bountiful harvest is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
And good luck making peace if you're not quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Righteous fruit grows in the soil of meekness. So in all our interactions, we must be characterized by this peacemaking, by this meekness, by this gentle humility, self-control, and the way we respond to others. Parents, if I can speak to you for a moment, your anger at your kids will not help them love Jesus more. It will not produce a harvest of righteousness. Married folks, your anger towards one another will not promote growth and love and be an accurate reflection of the gospel to the world. Employees and employers, your anger at work will not draw sinners to Christ. Voters, your anger in an election year will not persuade people to submit their opinions to the moral law of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And this even includes our efforts at confrontation and rebuke. For those who are members in this church, we are held to a level of accountability. We hold one another to the standard of Scripture. But as we approach others in sin, as we rebuke them even and warn them and call them to repent, we must be ever mindful of our own fallibility. We must be thankful and humble because of the grace and forgiveness that God has shown us. That's why Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? Meekness, gentleness. Look to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Even when we confront sin, there must be self-control and humility and gentleness Proverbs says that a soft word, a soft tongue, can break a bone. Sometimes we speak bone-breaking words that even hurt, but we must do it with gentleness and with humility. So we are to be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. James shows us that genuine faith should cultivate a spirit of meekness in our hearts, and that meekness is demonstrated when we respond with gentle humility towards others. There's a second point, and we find this in verse 21. We must also respond with humble receptiveness to the word. Therefore, he says in verse 21, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I keep emphasizing this, but I want to say it again, that James is not telling us just to act differently, as if we simply need to exchange one external morality for another. He ultimately wants to get at our hearts, and unless we are transformed by the gospel, unless we receive with meekness the implanted word able to save our souls, then all your efforts at external reform is useless. You're just cleaning the outside of the cup, Jesus says, and leaving the inside filthy. So we must respond to the word with humble receptiveness. This meekness towards God and receiving his word is demonstrated, first of all, through repentance. Demonstrated through repentance. He says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. James uses here the language of repentance to describe how we should prepare our hearts to receive the word. If you are unrepentant and you're holding on to sin, then you're not in a position to receive the word. Repentance 
involves acknowledging the sinfulness of our sin, grieving over our sin, turning away from our sin towards Christ and forsaking our sin. James says we, we should put this off, that we should put it away from us. And I think the sins he's referring to specifically have to deal with the sins of pride and anger and lack of self-control, the sins that have just been exposed in the previous verse. Paul echoes the same sentiment in Colossians 3, 5 through 8. He says, We are to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Meekness is demonstrated as we continue to put off the filthy garment of sin, our anger, our pride, because that sin keeps us from being able to receive the word. We need to humbly acknowledge our sin and seek the cleansing that comes through Christ. Seeking his mercy. Coming to the foot of the cross knowing that through the shedding of his blood we can and will be forgiven. That if we confess our sins like John says, he's faithful and just. He'll forgive. He'll cleanse. God delights in a broken and contrite spirit. He responds with mercy to those who repent. He opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble who turn to him in repentance. So this meekness is demonstrated through repentance. We put away sin so that we can receive the word. But it's also demonstrated through dependence. Dependence. Look in verse 21. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. There's sort of two levels here to receiving the word. We're responsible to receive it. There's something to obey here on our part. But at the same time, James knows that God is the one who implants his word. He's the one who takes his truth and roots it deep into us so that our character, our emotions, our very thoughts are transformed and renewed. Friends, this is grace. It is God's gift to us, and it must be received. We are utterly dependent upon God to implant his word into our hearts. That's why every time we open the word here in this church, we start with prayer. God, implant your word in us. We need you to do the work. We are coming obediently and expectantly, but we need you to do it. We can't do it for ourselves. I can't do it for you. It's a work of God. And we come with meekness to receive the word, depending on him to place his truth in us. And the good news is, this is what God does. The glorious promise of the new covenant, this promise of grace, is that God will write his law on our hearts. Jeremiah 31, 33, God says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. This is the implanting of the word, and it brings salvation. Ezekiel 36 He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. That looks like receiving the word, doesn't it? And be careful to obey my rules. My friends, God is the one who implants his word and it is his word 
It is the truth. It is the gospel. It is the truth of Jesus Christ found in his word that is able to save our souls. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. There is saving power in the word. In scripture, we discover the truth about our need, but also the truth about God's gracious provision for that need through the birth and the righteous life the substitutionary death, and the glorious resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And there's no other way. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you're seeking salvation today, if you do not know Christ, if you know that you're a sinner and you feel your guilt and you're not ready to die and stand before the judge, then my friend, what you need is to receive the word and the truth that it proclaims, specifically the truth of Jesus. There's not another path. There's only one name among men by which we can be saved, and it's Jesus Christ. And my friend, you cannot embrace Jesus as your Savior and at the same time reject his word. That is a gross contradiction. To receive salvation through the bleeding hands of Christ and yet to reject his word? To refuse to receive it is a gross contradiction. It is wicked hypocrisy. Jesus is the word made flesh. It is the scripture that bears witness to him. So to receive the scriptures is to embrace the one that the scriptures point to, which is Jesus. And to embrace him as savior means we must also kneel and bow before him as our Lord. He demands that we submit to and receive his word. I think the salvation that James refers here to is not only our experience of conversion. Some of you may be listening to this saying, amen, and yes, and you know what, J.D., I'm already a Christian. I believe in the gospel. I've been born again. So how does this apply to me? Don't forget, James is talking here to beloved brothers. And often when James talks of salvation in this book, He's not just referring to that moment of conversion. He's referring to the entire experience of of not just conversion, but also sanctification, perseverance, and then glorification. James is always looking at the end. He's always looking to the finish line. Remember in, in verse 12, he said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. James always has the big picture in mind. He's always thinking about that final day. In James 2, verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Notice he doesn't say, has that faith saved him? He says, can that faith save him? In verse 12 of chapter 4, He says, there's only one lawgiver and one judge, he who is able to save and destroy. And he's not just talking about conversion there. He's talking about the final day when we stand before him. In verse 8 of chapter 5, he says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Are are you getting the, the emphasis here that James can't stop thinking about the return of Christ, the final day of judgment, and whether or not you and I will be found to be standing in grace? one with Christ through faith, or whether we will be exposed. And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. I could go on and give you multiple other examples for time, we won't do that. 
But let me just say this. The life-giving truth of the word is what God uses to preserve us to the end. Someone who does not receive the word, who consistently spurns the word, who rejects the word, is giving evidence that they don't have life. And if they are a believer, they are on thin ice in the sense that they're putting themselves in a dangerous, precarious position. Jesus says in John 15 that those who have life, those who bear fruit, are those who abide in him, remain in him. It is in Christ that we have life and nourishment and bear fruit, not just receiving salvation at one point, but continuing in this life, this newness of life that we have in Christ. And it's essential that we receive his word. We commune with Christ. We feast on Christ in the word. We abide in him and he abides in us. There's not a different way to experience Christ than in his word. So don't be so arrogant as to think you don't need the scriptures. Only fools will turn away from what imparts life. And James says, receive with meekness this word, which is able to save your souls. Receive it, my friend, not just with your eyes, not just with your ears, but with your heart. Meekness is demonstrated by a humble dependence on God and his grace and his word. The man who humbly receives that all God will say to him in the word is a man who is giving evidence that that word has been implanted in him and that he is depending on the word of truth, on the promise of the gospel to save him. My friends, this meekness that James urges us towards is not optional. It's essential. And keep in mind, it is commanded by the Christ who possesses all authority on heaven and on earth. So we can't leave here today without asking ourselves this question. Do you and do I demonstrate this kind of gentle humility towards others? Are you quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger? If the answer is yes, Praise God for good fruit. If the answer is not always, then my friends, this is not just about modifying our behavior, learning to play nicely with others. There is a level of change that needs to take place in the heart, and it starts with repentance. It starts with putting away from ourselves this rampant wickedness, our pride, our anger, our selfishness, And coming before God with a broken and contrite spirit, you will never defeat anger apart from repentance. You will never be rid of your pride apart from a broken heart and a contrite spirit. It starts with repentance. Confess it as sin. Grieve over it. Hate it and put it to death. Your sin is like a rabid dog lingering around your house. You don't pet it. You put a bullet in it. That's how we are to treat our sin. Put it away. Is your heart receptive to the word? Are you receptive to the word as you read it? Are you receptive to the word as you hear it from this pulpit? Are you receptive to the word as it is spoken in your hearing by your brothers and sisters in Christ? If so, praise God for good fruit. Evidence of living faith. If not, then James... 
Actually, Christ calls you today to repent and to receive with meekness his word. Would anyone describe you as meek? Has anyone ever accused you of that? I hope so. But even more importantly, does God see real meekness, gentleness, humility in you? Because ultimately, it's his evaluation that matters. And you might be able to trick us, but he sees the heart. He sees the heart. My friend, if you are in need of heart change today, let me invite you not only to submit to the authority of Christ, but to come and receive the grace of Christ, the grace that forgives sin, and the grace that spurs us on to change and growth. Remember, this gentleness, this meekness, is a fruit of the Spirit. So you can't just grit your teeth and try harder. You need divine power. And divine power has been granted to you. His Spirit dwells in you. If you feel weak and incapable, then congratulations. You're in exactly the right place to start growing. Because you're going to cry out to Him and say, I need your help. I can't change myself. But I believe that you can. And I believe that you will. Because I know your purpose is to conform me to the image of Christ who is meek and lowly in spirit. So draw near to him today, not only with a broken heart, seeking to hate your sin, but draw near with a believing heart. Trust in his grace. Trust in his gospel. Receive his help and the strength that the Spirit provides. Confess your pride and your bitterness and your anger. Lay aside the filthiness and the rampant wickedness of pride and sin and receive this morning with meekness this word that has been read in your hearing. Heavenly Father, it is so convicting to look into the mirror of Scripture and to see the things in our hearts that do not reflect Christ. God, it is our temptation to make excuses, to see the splinter in somebody else's eye and ignore the log in our own. I pray that each one of us this morning would allow you to shine the spotlight of your word directly onto our hearts. Put us on the examination table. Open us up. Lay out the contents of our mind and our heart. Search us, God, and know us. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in us. And God, I pray that you would grant the grace of a broken heart, that you would bring us to repentance. Lord, it is not only the rebuke of your word, but also your kindness that leads us to this repentance. And Lord, you have been so patient with us. You've been so long-suffering towards us. You have not rendered to us what our sins deserve. God, I pray that that kindness, rather than than leading us to be um, complacent about our sin, I pray that it would lead us to repentance. Give us a holy hatred for our pride. Grant us the spiritual strength and maturity to have self-control. And I pray that as we seek growth in this area, that we would increasingly reflect the strength and the glory and the righteousness of Christ. And I pray, God, that as we grow in this specific area, that it would transform our friendships, that it would transform our homes and our families, that it would heal and strengthen our marriages, and that it would reflect something that is only explainable to the world by the fact that Christ is here that he lives in us. We pray for you to do a great work in us today, God. We pray it in the holy name of Jesus and for the sake of his name.
Amen.